0: Today on the show, I'm going to cover a couple of Halloween classics. The original Halloween from 1978, and the original Friday the 13th from 1980. Alright everyone, welcome to Brandon at Random Reviews. I am your host, Brandon Griffiths. Thank you for tuning in. I do appreciate you stopping by. I guess today, as I mentioned, I'm going to be covering a couple of horror movies, you know, slasher type movies. Not the first slasher movies, but some of the first ones to popularize the entire subgenre. I, I do want to go into, there- there's a concept that I-, I think a lot of people probably aren't super familiar with and they probably haven't heard it referred to as this by anybody but there's an idea called the final girl and it was a term coined by an author named carol j clover in her book men women and chainsaws gender in the modern horror film basically what it says is that there's like a final girl who is typically, you know, is morally pure and she will make it through the entire movie. And once all of the The suspense has reached a boiling point. She has like a final showdown with the the killer of the movie or, you know, what have you. And she will either escape harm or she will kill the killer and live to tell the tale one way or the other. And I some perfect examples include the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, which is a great one, honestly. Like if you just watch the first Texas Chainsaw Massacre, the original original, you're in good shape. You, that's that's a solid one, and it's genuinely terrifying. Halloween is obviously one. Alien with Sigourney Weaver is very solid. Friday the 13th, which I'll also be talking about on this podcast. A Nightmare on Elm Street, which is... Uh, It's like a classic favorite for me. I I ended up watching the first one without any recommendation or anything years ago, and I was very pleasantly surprised by how well they did making this horror movie, you know? It it really just, it got at you. There were, I I looked at the wiki page for The Final Girl, and there were not many examples listed other than that. I mean, there are definitely other examples I can think of, because I'm pretty sure, like, I Know What You Did Last Summer has A Final Girl, and uh, a bunch of the 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 ones from the 90s that were around then were all final girl type movies. I've also noticed about the final girl that she's not, particularly hot for some reason. Like, I'm not saying they're they're complete and utter ugly people, but I'm saying that every final girl I've ever seen, I've kind of looked at and been like, eh, she's alright looking. You know, she's, she's okay. And I'll get into that a little bit with these two that I'll discuss in today's episode, but I, I just wanted to kind of make it a point of saying like, hey, you know, these are more regular run-of-the-mill type girls that don't have any business being like the sex symbol of the movie or something like that, I guess, is is how I want to put it. So another thing I wanted to mention before I get into the movies, and this will be quick, is I need you to understand that when I'm recording these episodes when I'm I go through I make all these notes I make all of this effort to talk about these movies and discuss what I like about them and everything you've got to understand that when I say that a movie is good I am not personally recommending that movie to you just because I say that a movie is five stars and that's what I think it is that doesn't mean that you're gonna look at it and you're gonna watch the whole movie and also think it's five stars like for instance I mentioned my sister, you know, she was, she texted me to tell me that Scott Pilgrim versus the world was very ungood and she didn't like it and blah, blah, blah. And I was just kind of like, and she likened it to Abraham Lincoln Vampire Hunter and levels of not goodness. And I'm like, well, it sounds like I just need to check out Abraham Lincoln Vampire Hunter after all, huh? And you know, like that was all I said to her. because It's like, it is, it's, it's not, I mean, like, sure, I'm telling you that I thought a movie was good, but that is not me saying, hey, you, you specifically should watch this because I said it was good. Because what pisses me off is that when people specifically ask for a suggestion for them, and I, like, tailor my suggestion to them so that they understand that it's actually including their tastes and everything on the recommendation, they, they don't give a shit. I mean, like, they, they don't- people that do that, that ask for a recommendation, I give them one, and they turn around and don't fucking watch the movie- I've talked about it before. It's fucking. It's not cool. I mean, it's like don't fucking ask me anymore. You know what I mean? Just don't bother asking me. You can listen to my podcast and and listen and hear what movies I like and see if you want to roll the dice and see if they're any good. I don't give a shit. I think do what you want. I'm just telling you that I can tell you a lot better if you ask me to personalize a recommendation. You know, but it's like watch it. If I if I if you ask me for a recommendation and I and I tell you what to watch just fucking watch it don't don't make it a thing where you all of a sudden aren't going to fucking do anything about it and you're not going to bother to check it out it's like god damn it okay getting into our uh, our movies today and i think i'll i was i was trying to dis- determine which way i wanted to go with this if i wanted to discuss these film series first or if I wanted to discuss the movies first and I think what I'll do is I'll discuss the original movie and then I will discuss the film series that they spawned and then I will continue on in that manner as long as I can and yeah that'll be that'll be my game plan. So Halloween from 1978 this is the original ...movie, released on October 25th, 1978, directed by John Carpenter, who also made Assault on Precinct 13, The Fog, Escape from New York... The Thing, Christine, which I need to see, Starman, which I've never heard of and kind of want to check out, Big Trouble in Little China, which I've seen but I need to revisit because it's been a really long time, Prince of Darkness, which I've never heard of but would like to see, They Live, which is a solid one with Rowdy Roddy Piper in it, Village of the Damned, Escape from L.A., and Ghosts of Mars. Now, I can tell you without question that Escape from L.A. is terrible, don't bother, if you like the first one, leave it at that. Escape from New York is a superior movie, and it's just it's way, way better written and everything, and all the there aren't a bunch of shitty effects and stuff. So, you know, just keep that in mind. So the writer of this movie is John Carpenter and Deborah Hill. Um, some of the notable movies that Deborah Hill, because mostly those movies are listed off by John Carpenter that he directed, he also wrote them, so I feel like it's kind of pointless to talk more about the same exact movies. Deborah Hill did also uh, work on The Fog. She also worked on Escape from New York. She helped on Halloween 2, which you'll note that John Carpenter did not direct, but he also had some input in, and I'll get into why he wasn't involved in the second Halloween movie and all that stuff. And then she also worked on Escape from L.A., and I, I believe Deborah Hill has since passed, but I, I, I'm i sorry to hear that Escape from L.A. was her last movie of note. She also produced Halloween 3, which I'll definitely talk about a little bit in the, at the end of this uh, segment. She did The Dead Zone, Clue, Adventures in Babysitting, Big Top Peewee. I probably have seen the Peewee movies in my life, but I don't remember them at all. And I don't think that they would hold up for me because I just don't think I would like anything about what those movies stand for but it is what it is I I guess at some point maybe if it's free and I can actually watch it I'll give it a shot so the composer of this movie was John Carpenter he uh he composes a lot of the music for a lot of his movies he uh composed the score for this in four days which is pretty neat you've got this this music like this piano music and then you've got this like synthy weird you know score to go along with it that's like you know incidental type music and it's i love the piano music but the synthy music as i've mentioned in the past is not my cup of tea usually like i i actually like synthy music sometimes like when i'm listening to songs but as a score for a movie they don't really hold up very well as like actual good scores so they just make them seem dated but the Lead actress in this movie is Jamie Lee Curtis, who was unknown going into this movie when she was cast. She is the daughter of the actress uh, Janet Lee, who starred in the movie Psycho. That did help greatly in her getting cast in this movie. And I- I've never really heard her talk about whether or not that bothers her that like she had to you know kind of stand on her mother's shoulders to to get the role. But I mean, I'm sure she's grateful because it gave her a career. And so Jamie Lee Curtis has played the character Laurie Strode as she does in this movie. In films released in six different decades, from the 1970s to the 2020s, this film in 1978, Halloween 2, 1981, Halloween H2O in 1998, Halloween Resurrection in 2002, Halloween 2018, and. Halloween Kills in 2021. That's pretty fucking impressive. I mean, I'll get into why those are all over the place and all that shit, but just, you know, to give you that that basic gist, it's It is what it is. So she's been in quite a few other movies since this movie, obviously. She was in True Lies, which is the personal favorite of mine. She was in Prom Night, Terror Train. She was in Trading Places, which stars Dan Aykroyd and Eddie Murphy. And she was in Perfect with John Travolta, which was fucking terrible. But she actually looked really nice in it. That was was good. She was in A Fish Called Wanda, which I kind of never really got the appeal of, but whatever. And she was also in the movie My girl. And I don't know if she was in any, if she was in the sequel or if she just, just did the first one. I don't remember those movies at all. We have Donald Pleasance, who actually worked for, I believe it was like five days on this movie. He plays Dr. Sam Loomis. And I only honestly know him from a couple of other movies, especially, you know, he's in a bunch of the other Halloween movies. He plays the same character. And then he's in You Only Live Twice. He plays Ernst Stavro Blofeld, and He's like the main bad guy. And if you look at images of him from that movie, you can see where Mike Myers got the inspiration for Dr. Evil. And he was also in The Great Escape, which is a solid classic film. PJ Souls, who is, she's in other bit things. She, she gets totally naked in this movie, like totally. And I say that because she will not shut the fuck up about saying totally throughout this entire film. And it just aggravates me. She only says it 11 times but she is saying it so distinctively you know it's just like you can't fucking ignore it so she plays I believe it's Linda and she's only been in like she's in Stripes with Bill Murray and Harold Ramis and she was in Carrie with John Travolta and Sissy Spacek and I mean she's she's a, a character actress she's not You know, she's never been, like, a leading lady or anything, but she's good. And, you know, she's really pretty, so that that helps. Just one casting note. There are conflicting reports about Jamie Lee Curtis's mother playing some role in her getting cast. Like you kept hearing, you know, depending on where you were looking, they would say that John Carpenter was 100%. It was all because of Janet Lee that Jamie Lee Curtis got cast. And then there you'd see another one where it said that, you know, he was... Despite her being Janet Lee's daughter, he was still willing to cast her or something. You know what I mean? Like, it's just kind of dumb. So I'll give you a basic plot synopsis. And I've actually converted over completely to just plot synopses that I can come up with on my own. I don't even give you the IMDB one anymore because I think mine are just that special. Uh, my... Synopsis is a 6-year-old boy murders his sister and is committed to a sanitarium. 15 years later, he manages to escape and pick up where he left off all those years ago in his hometown on October 31st. Anyway, let's uh let's dive into this this cool fucking 70s slasher flick. Uh we start off, you know, and it's we get basically it's, you know, a dark Halloween night in 1963. And we're getting like a POV shot of somebody walking around outside this house, and there's a girl and a guy in there, you know, and they're having a little date night type thing, and they're they're kissing on the couch, and then you know it's obviously escalating to the bedroom, and they go upstairs, and you know the the camera goes and you know it goes into the kitchen, you see a hand grab a knife in this POV, and they put on a mask, and they go, you know they go upstairs and like they go are about to go upstairs and the guy is already leaving because you know he's obviously like uh you know not he's like a minute man or whatever you want to call it and he takes off and then this you know pov shot goes upstairs where the girl is still upstairs and she's like doing her hair or whatever and they just show it's all all pov from, you know, this has been happening, like, where it's like, you don't know who the person is, you don't know really what's going on, and then he just starts fucking stabbing his, you know, his victim, and he goes outside, and, you know, he's, his parents come home, and it's, you know, it's Michael Myers, I I gotta just fucking break it to you, it's Michael Myers that's doing this, he's killing his sister, he's the main antagonist of the movie, he is the bad guy, he is the killer of these movies, and it's never in question whether or not, it's him. So Michael Myers goes downstairs. His his dad pulls his mask off, and Michael just has this blank look. And it's it's the weirdest ending to this en- intro because this intro is iconic. And I I have to admit I watched the YouTuber Dead Meat. They did a, a kill count episode on on the. Halloween, the first Halloween movie and they did the whole series but anyway they, he, he was talking about how it's like they sit there forever after they, they see Michael comes out of this house with a fucking kitchen knife in his hand wearing a mask and he's got like presumably blood on him and shit and they just stand there, they don't like run in to call the ho- the cops or they don't go and see if everyone's okay, they don't do anything and I mean I guess it's just it, it should have just cut out sooner because they probably, you probably could have assumed that they were going to get that. But a, a fun fact that I had, the stabbing sounds that you hear when Michael is killing his sister are the sound of a watermelon being stabbed. And I, I just, as soon as this is over, we we cut to Loomis is going out to see Michael Myers because he's got to take him to a trial or a hearing or whatever. And it's so great because it's such a... A classic thing now that like Loomis is that guy that knows what a monster everyone's dealing with you know he knows how bad Michael Myers is and nobody takes him that seriously at all nobody fucking believes a word he says he could tell them Anything under the sun and they would not fucking believe him. When they go, you know, they get to the sanitarium, Smith's Grove is what it's called, and basically you can see that a lot of the the patients have broken out of the the sanitarium and they are all of a sudden like you who you are to understand is Michael Myers is like actively trying to get into this car, and he at one point he's on top of the roof and he's like on the on the roof of the car and he reaches around while The nurse that Loomis was riding with is sitting and, like, trying to remain calm. And he, like, he breaks the window with his hand. And I... I I couldn't help but wonder like how hard it would be to break that glass you know like I've hit car glass pretty fucking hard before it does not just go without a fight you know it's not it's not that easy and apparently my suspicions were correct because he whoever did the stunt or whatever apparently had a wrench adhered to their hand and was it was painted flesh color which is crazy and apparently like if you go back and freeze frame it you can totally see the wrench but you know you know I didn't bother to do that you know and then after all is said and done you know it's not like anybody's in question about as far as nurse chambers she's not doubting that Michael Myers is a fucking psychopath so after all of this ha- has happened and it's all setting up the entire plot of the movie we, we see Lori for the first time Lori Strode played by Jamie Lee Curtis and she is dressed for school I mean I'm sure it was normal by 1978 standards to dress like this maybe I've never seen pictures of women dressed like this but she's wearing these these tights that are like cream colored like I'm used to, you know, if it would have been like shitty nylons or if they had nylons, then I don't know what they had. But if it would have been like a darker color or more of a flesh colored, but it's like you're wearing fucking cream colored tights on your legs. It just looks weird. I mean, Pinterest described what, and this is probably going to be better than anything I can say because I don't know fashion, but it said it was a modest forest green turtleneck, tan cable knit cardigan, knee length floral print skirt, cream tights, and penny loafers and by the way penny loafers as a concept were for when this is what I initially found. They, they were, they were for when, um, the phone box cost two cents to make a call in case of an emergency. But apparently that's actually not a thing. Like it was never that cheap to ma- make a phone call. So it was like, it actually cost five cents to make a call. So basically nobody's, nobody's really talking about why penny loafers exist. Cause I think they're just the weirdest fucking thing. Like why do we have these fucking shoes that it's like a style thing to put pennies in the tongue of the fucking shoe? I don't, I don't get it at all, but you know they go. You know Lori's dad is having her drop the you know key at the Myers house or whatever, which is now like a haunted house type location in Haddonfield, Illinois, where they're you know the fictional place where they're located, and apparently. That's, like, a thing in a lot of towns where there's, like, a haunted house. I can't think of one in my hometown. I remember there was, like, an abandoned orphanage when I lived in Marquette that had not been in operation for a very long time. And, I mean, they were always... People were always sneaking into it and running around in there. And, you know, there was all sorts of creepy shit in there. I won't deny it for a minute. And it was always pretty cool. But, you know, it's one of those public nuisance things that, in due time, they will fucking find out, you know that it's a problem and they will probably destroy it. So there is a scene because, you know, we meet all of Lori's friends. We meet the kids that she babysits. You know, we we meet all these fucking people. Her friend Annie is insufferable and as soon as I see Annie I think man I can't wait until Michael Myers strangles Annie in the back or you know from the back seat of that car it's gonna be so fucking great I just I always I'm rooting for Annie's demise in this movie no matter what so Loomis is is standing and looking around because you know he's come he's come to Haddonfield because he's convinced Michael Myers is going to return and he's warning the police about what kind of guy this is and what he's gonna do and how dangerous he is You know, he's standing there waiting for the police officer and he starts looking around and lo and behold, this fucking, you know... Michael rounds the corner behind Loomis in the car that he stole from Loomis, and he fucking, Loomis never sees him. Like, he basically just looks the wrong way every time he gets the chance. So, yeah, it's it's a pretty cool shot, though. It's a very wide shot. You get to just see Loomis standing there in the middle of the frame and and Michael Myers just driving around behind him. I mean, another, another thing about Annie is, you know, like, Laurie kind of, entrusts her with this this bit of information that she's got a thing for Ben Tramer, and it's just some guy from school or whatever, and he or, and Annie decides that she needs to take it in her hands and tell Ben Tramer how Lori feels, and then she uses it to, like, blackmail Lori, and it's like, holy shit, what a fucking bag of shit. Anyway, you know, they go back to... Loomis and this police officer and you know Loomis is talking to him about what he's he's just basically laying the groundwork for what a psycho Michael Myers is right and he's trying to explain to him and he has this quote that I cannot deny is fucking awesome they found a dog that Michael Myers killed presumably to eat And they're talking about, you know, how horrible it is and all this stuff. And then he is explaining the backstory of Michael Myers. And he says, I met this six-year-old child with this blank, pale, emotionless face and the blackest eyes, the devil's eyes. I spent eight years trying to reach him and then another seven trying to keep him locked up because I realized what was living behind that boy's eyes was purely and simply evil. So it's like, yeah, you're really fucking setting the bar for Michael Myers not being a good dude. Okay. I, I would say every time, you know, throughout this movie, we hear a lot of the, the incidental scoring and the music is just, I, I love the, the piano music of like the theme song, but everything sounds dated to me. You know what I mean? It sounds so fucking old and not great. And I realize it's going to sound dated because it's from 1978 and it wasn't like one of these timeless movies, but it's, I don't know. I I, I have my struggles with it. Maybe today, you know, if you look at the movie through the, lens of today, you'd think, God, I'd want to believe kids would react a little more to a guy... Acting like a fucking weirdo, you know, like, following them around, hiding behind bushes, shit like that. But it's, it's not very clear, like, what they're dealing with. Like, I mean, they're clearly pretty casual about having this creepo following them around. And, I mean, like, Lori, at one point she goes back to her house and she looks over and sees Michael Myers in the, by the clotheslines behind her house. And he just disappears, you know? And it's like, What? Anyway, so I just think that they would have done... I think they would have reacted a little more in these days, but maybe not. Um, I'd like to coin the term Loomising to be when you're warning people about something bad and you're being ignored. Because that's exactly what happens with Loomis at every fucking turn in this movie and in a lot of this film series in general. The biggest thing for me that I notice in this movie is like, they don't have any major murders between when Michael kills his sister as a little boy and then you know you go all you go 15 years ahead and he escapes and there is a good long time between when Michael you know when you see a, a death first and then you see another death after it's like a long fucking time i mean it's like half hour 45 minutes or something and i mean you you keep getting you know you're switching between Between the two storylines of like Loomis coming to town. And then you come to see Lori and her friends and what she's doing babysitting that night and all that stuff. And and you know, you, you might think to yourself, as Lori is like on the phone with Annie, you might think to yourself, God, I feel like Annie's being kind of a terrible friend. And you'd be 100 percent correct. That is absolutely right. Annie is a horrible friend, and she is a piece of shit that Lori should not hang out with. But I digress. I, I'm I'm always so excited when he finally you know cuz he he kills annie in the back or from the back seat of this car. Annie gets in the front and he starts strangling her and it's very silent. There's no music, no nothing. And then she tries to like use the horn to call attention to herself and then he just makes a quick kill of it and stabs her. And but it I mean it's a fucking great kill. I really like it. But he like leaves her on the horn. Like after she dies, and the horn is blaring. And it's like he doesn't take her off the horn right away. And I'm like, "What are you doing, Michael? What what are you thinking?" Anyway, the, the amount of, pr- of pride that we get. So, Loomis is hiding outside of the Myers house. And he's just waiting around to see if Michael will turn up there. And... He tries, he scares these kids away because he figures out what one of their names is and he like scares them away. And then he has this look of like overwhelming pride on his face. Like he just did something fucking amazing by scaring some like 10 year old kid away. And it is what it is. We get, you know, we keep seeing, you know, different settings, different characters, you know, Linda's PJ souls, character, and she is with her boyfriend, Bob. And Bob's got glasses. They have sex for a comically short period of time. And then Bob goes down to get beer or whatever. And Michael kills him. He like holds him up against a wall and he stabs him. And then he, he stabs the knife into him, into the wall, thus holding his entire body up. With the knife pinned to the wall. And it's pretty fucking cool. I'm not gonna lie. And you know. So after this kill. Michael goes up and fucking. He's gonna mess with Linda. And he's got a fucking sheet over his head. Making himself look like a ghost. And he's got Bob's glasses on. And it's like. I I don't see what the fuck. I mean it kind of adds a little element to it but it's like he could have just as easily walked up there and fucking murdered her and made quick work of her and not wasted his time but whatever. Yeah, I mean so while Michael is killing Linda she calls like she she's before Michael even starts to kill her she calls Lori And Lori answers, and all of a sudden, Michael, as soon as Lori answers, is now strangling Linda with the phone cord. Lori says this line that is, all right, Annie, first I get your famous chewing, now I get your famous squealing. And, you know, obviously, it's made to sound like it's like a a lewd, sexual thing that Linda is doing, but, like, Lori thinks it's Annie because... She doesn't know Annie is dead yet, you know. So, it, I mean, like it, I kept thinking when with all these phone calls going on in this movie because, you know, you get Annie calling Lori, Lori calling Annie, Paul calling Annie, you know, all of this shit, Linda calling Lori, it's like in the cell phone age, this would not have worked at all. You know what I mean? There are way too many things going on where it's like, yeah, if you would have just fucking had a cell phone on you, you would have been fine and there would have been no problem. But it's important to note though, at this point in the movie with 20 minutes left, I mean, literally 20 minutes left on the runtime, not just like how much actual pre-credits time is left, which is probably more like, sixteen seventeen? With with this amount of time left, Lori is only just now beginning to believe that there might actually be something awry with what's going on and their people might be in danger and blah blah blah. And <sighs> Jamie Lee Curtis says one of the most commonly asked questions because this is when you know she's finally having a showdown with Michael Myers at the end of the movie. And she says one of the most commonly asked fan questions is why did you throw away the knife? Which might be the most reasonable question I have ever heard. And she actually does it two separate times. So it's like, I'll give you a pass on the first one because you don't realize that you're the final girl in a horror movie, but let's get real here. You, you need to fucking have your wits about you and, and keep that knife handy. There's this big, long, there's a very cool chase scene and they've established all of these locations where Michael Myers is killed leading up to this. And they go finally to, you know, they, they show this scene where Laurie is running from Michael Myers and she's, you know, she's trapped in this closet. She's, you know, trying to figure out a way to get the best of him. And then like Loomis finally figures out that, you know, he figures out where Michael Myers must be. And he goes into the house where Laurie is and Michael's chasing her and Loomis shoots him once with a, with a, with a, like a six shooter revolver. And then I guess the way I put it is Dr. Samuel Loomis brandishing a revolver pistol shoots Michael Myers six times at point blank range. Myers falls flat on his back off the second story balcony of the suburban home. Of course he gets up. We've all survived something like that, right? And that's how I really, I really do feel about it. It's, it's, kind of ridiculous but it it's also just like it's to make him seem like a supernatural being, you know? It doesn't it doesn't have to be realistic, you know? I would say very like the the silence and the slow movement that we keep experiencing in this movie makes for a more horrifying movie and I don't know why that works, but it does. Um just Michael's presence or like, you know, the threat of his presence is too fucking real and it's hard to it's hard to deny it and you know jamie lee curtis and donald pleasance they they gave it their all especially when donald pleasance was not excited to be in this movie he just he had like a daughter or niece or something i can't remember what it was but she wanted him to be in this movie because she liked carpenter's Score for Assault on Precinct 13. And so, I mean, I guarantee Donald Pleasance wasn't too pissed about having been in this movie because he agreed to be in almost every Halloween movie from this one until 1995. Which is a lot of fucking movies. I mean, the only one he wasn't in was Halloween 3, and I'll get into that. And I mean, I would say the score is great. It's it's a little dated, but I still, I think if you put it under the lens of, okay, I'm watching a movie from the 70s, that's fine. The runtime is perfect. 90 minutes is all we really need with these, you know, this storyline, these characters. It's very simplistic. It doesn't need to be overdone. Talking to you, Rob Zombie. My my other criticism is the score. I mean, like, I, I love the score, but at the same time, it some of it is cheap easy you know and I had some some trivia that I found you know Carpenter agreed to direct contingent on his having creative control over this movie okay Carpenter was paid $10,000 for his work writing directing and scoring the film The original title of this movie was going to be The Babysitter Murders. Screenplay was written in about 10 days, which is pretty good. It's not as good as, you know, I think Rocky was written in three days or something, but the character of Tommy Doyle is named after a character in Rear Window and Sam Loomis after a character in Psycho. Both are works of Alfred Hitchcock, so that's pretty cool that he gave such a nod to Alfred Hitchcock. I mean, it really shows how influential Alfred Hitchcock is. Uh, Nick Castle portrayed michael myers who is billed as the shape in the end credits which is it's just a cool little thing that they did i don't really i don't know i mean there was some story about like the salem witch trials i read but i didn't really want to get into that so it had something to do with with that the mask was actually a captain kirk mask painted white and honestly it it looks pretty fucking good for you know like to be a, a like they kind of widened the eyes a little bit you know but other than that it was it's pretty much the same thing just painted white. Jamie Lee Curtis's wardrobe was purchased at JCPenney for around $100 which I would have guessed closer to like $20 but okay. Due to the sequence of shooting Carpenter created a fear meter to help the actors understand what level of terror they should appear to be in in a given scene. The crew had difficulty procuring pumpkins during this production as the film was shot in the spring. Yeah, I could definitely see that. And they had to, they had to go through, they had to use like leaves that were painted to make, to make them look like they're fall colors and stuff, you know, just shit like that. Oh man. So I've talked about my nuggets in the past and I've got a handful of nuggets. Usually I only do like one or two, but this movie was a special exception to that rule. So IMDB nuggets. Carpenter showed Halloween to an executive before it was finished. He showed the movie without the music. The executive didn't find it to be scary at all. After the film was released and she saw it, she changed her mind, an indication of how much Carpenter's score adds to the film's atmosphere. That's not fucking interesting at all. Like, I don't... Yes, clearly a score is like... But, like, isn't that pretty much true of most movies? Like, even, I mean, yeah, horror movies more so, but, like, get the fuck out of here. That's fucking stupid. That's that's why I do these. is because they're so dumb and I like to bitch about them. Uh, Deborah Hill worked for no salary but a percentage of the profits. As the film grossed in, in excess of $70 million, this proved to be highly lucrative. Guess what? Percentages come in all shapes and sizes, and to say that she just got a percentage of the profits, if they said to her she was gonna get 0.1% of the profits, like, yeah, that's a pretty decent, but it's, it's like, there is no reason to believe that she necessarily made bank on this movie just based on saying that she got a percentage of the profits. You just don't know. Another IMDb nugget, as I call them, Michael Myers never runs nor speaks. Well, guess what? If you watch the fucking movie, you will see that his thing is not running and not speaking. Okay? In the scene where Laurie and Annie smoke a joint on the way to their destination, Don't Fear the Reaper by Blue Oyster Cult can be heard on Annie's car radio. A cover version of the song plays in the movie Scream from 1996, a horror film that features teens watching and referencing this film as well as other horror classics. Yup. Okay. Cause it's kind of like they were probably just making a reference, you know, doing a little nod like Carpenter did with, you know, Loomis and Doyle. You know what I mean? Like that that's, that's not interesting. That's I mean, watch the movie scream. Yeah, it's a big fucking meta movie about horror movies, you know? This one this one might have been my favorite. If Mike Myers used his real name as his stage name, it would be Michael Myers, like the killer in this movie. Yep, it sure would. Okay, this one is where they go off the rails, and it's it's almost too much. It is too much. Judith's killing is a metaphor of the morality and way of thinking in the 60s and 70s when the movie set, after to catch Judith with her boyfriend, Daniel Hodges, having relations... Michael decides to kill Daniel and Judith as punishment by their illicit activities in a time where all sex outside the marriage, especially in teenagers who were taught that they did must wait to be married, was roughly criticized and considered morally reprehensible. These killing cause a shock in Michael, who turns mute since then, and becomes obsessive to punish any teenager who commits acts against the old-fashioned values and the socially accepted customs of th- those time holy fuck, learn how to fucking write people. My God. I, I, you would have thought maybe I was just like struggling, you know, like spitting it out, but no, it was because I didn't realize how truly bad it was as far as the writing was concerned until I went through it that time. Okay. So I'm going to try and run through the film series. I'm going to try and be quick. Okay. We got the 1978's the first one. Okay. Very first Halloween movie, Michael Myers, you know, kills his sister, goes away for 15 years, breaks out, blah, blah, blah. Okay, then there is a direct sequel called Halloween 2 with Jamie Lee Curtis in it, and it's about basically the events immediately following the events of the first movie, okay? Halloween 3 rolls around, and it turns out that actually John Carpenter's intention with these movies was to have like an anthology series, and he goes into all of this shit about, uh, you know, how he was how going to make it a different story every every time and not, keep the same characters and then lo and behold we get halloween 3 season of the witch and it is the story about this evil mask manufacturer who is going to use these halloween masks to take over the world like mind control or something fucking stupid don't ever let any kind of hipster tell you that it's a good movie it's a very fucking bad movie and it's not even good like so bad it's good kind of movie it's it's a terrible watch i don't recommend it after that that movie was a bomb. People hated it. People wanted Michael Myers. They were fucking annoyed that he wasn't in the third one. And then they they waited all the way until, I don't remember exactly when Halloween 3 came out, but they waited until 88, I think it was, to do Halloween 4, the return of Michael Myers. And, you know, Michael Myers escapes, blah, blah, blah. And then they're like, you know, you think he's dead at the end of Halloween 4, and then he survives, and Halloween 5 happens, and they start laying the groundwork that Michael Myers has this curse curse or something and it's off the wall, batshit crazy. And then you get, you know, like five or six years later, you get Halloween, the curse of Michael Myers. Okay. So these are all following this, you know, an original timeline. And and what it is is like Jamie Lee Curtis doesn't appear in these movies because basically in the fourth movie, they write her off as having been killed in like an accident or something. And her daughter was left behind and her daughter is like the, probably I would say the protagonist of the movies. So like when the curse of Michael Myers rolls around, they're really going all in on this curse for, you know, him having been cursed by a cult or something. Anyway, it was fucking terrible. Uh, The only reason to watch it would be to see Paul Rudd in his first, or one of his first roles. Then, this is where it all gets interesting. Okay, so, Halloween Curse of Michael Myers was the sixth one, and that one did not do well, and uh, Donald Pleasence had been in all of these movies, and he actually died before they could finish shooting the sixth one. And then they, they decided they were going to go in another direction. And they said, we're going to do a movie that's going to be the seventh Halloween movie, but it's going to be called Halloween H2O, Halloween 20 years later, and it's going to be about Lori. And we're going to wipe out all of the movies from, you know, starting with Halloween three through Halloween six are all not going to count in this continuity. Okay. And so it's this big story with Lori again, you know, Dr. Loomis is gone. all this stuff and, you know, they make you think that Michael Myers is dead at the end of this one and then they go to, uh, what is it? Oh, then they go, you know, to the next one and it's called Halloween Resurrection and it's got Laurie in the beginning of it and, uh fuck it's got uh Buster Rhymes and I think like Tyra Banks or some fucking thing in it and it's oh, it's so fucking bad and and then you move on and oh look at this like Halloween Resurrection is universally panned and everyone fucking hates it and they go to a reboot made like written directed all that shit by Rob Zombie who made like what ended up being like way too fucking long and way too drawn out of a rehashing of the the first movie's story where it was like he spent way too much time with Michael Myers as a child. You know, it was like... They had it be that Michael Myers was getting bullied, and, you know, he was everybody was being dicks to him and stuff, and it's like, yeah, look, I don't want to sympathize with this fucking psychopath, you know what I mean? I don't want to fucking like him anymore, but whatever. And so he did that movie, it was way too long, and it wasn't- I mean, otherwise, it could have been a decent movie, and then he made Halloween 2, which was, you know, a direct sequel, and he- I've never seen it, but I've only heard bad things about it. And then now they're kind of doing a soft reboot of the movie where they're wiping out all of the previous movies except for the first one. And it's like... 2018 they came out with it and it's called Halloween so it's a sequel to Halloween that's called Halloween and then they came out with another one that's that's called Halloween kills a few years later and then you know they're coming out with another one this year called uh, Halloween ends I believe and these new ones have Laurie Strode in them and it's I mean it's all ridiculous but it's there's a lot of confusing continuity issues with these movies they're they're just all over the fucking place but anyway Halloween from 1978 had a runtime of 91 minutes, a budget of 325,000, worldwide gross of 60 to 70 million, an IMDb rating of 7.7, Rotten Tomato Critics score 96%, Rotten Tomato Audience score 89%. Personal Rating, 4.5 out of 5 stars. Thank you very much. And moving on to Friday the 13th from 1980. Release date was May 9th, 1980. Directed by Sean S. Cunningham and written by Victor Miller. The soundtrack slash score is uh, composed by Harry Manfredini. The top-billed actress in this movie is one Betsy Palmer you know, uh, she plays the character of Mrs. Voorhees. And, you know, I don't really know a lot of the other things that Betsy Palmer has been in. Like I don't, the things that she had like as a claim to fame before this movie that got her the part. I mean, I just don't recognize any of them. I I put Kevin Bacon second, even though he's definitely not the second build actor in this movie. Plays a character named Jack. And he, you know, he's been in a ton of movies. He's the guy that you can relate to within six degrees of anything. Uh, He was in a few good, Man, he was in Hollow Man. He was in The River Wild. I mean, he's just for me. He's he's great. He's usually not a great leading man, but he's he's pretty solid. Adrian King is the quote-unquote final girl of this movie. She plays Alice. She is not really in Jack shit. She's got like I don't know. I don't want to call it Farrah hair because it's too short to be Farrah hair, but it it looks pretty bad. Janine Taylor who I have noted here is hot. I mean, she's a bit young for me now, but like when I, I remember originally watching this movie when I was like a lot younger and I remember thinking this chick is fucking stupendous, you know? So anyway, and you know, she she's in the movie only till like maybe halfway, I want to say, but... Carrying on, casting notes. So they originally wanted Sally Field for the role of Alice, who is the, the final girl, but they quickly realized that they could not afford her. They use predominantly unknown actors in the cast, and, you know, I guess that's probably pretty obvious. Plot synopsis. A group of counselors attempt to rejuvenate an old camp with an unpleasant past and try not to die in the process with little success. All right, let's dive into this movie. Nowadays, I can't watch... Friday the 13th without being reminded of, you know, the fact that there's so much POV in the movie, and you don't, you know, it's basically just, you're seeing through the eyes of a killer what's going on, and they're bearing down on who they're about to kill, and the reason they do it in this movie is because they don't want you to know who the killer is, or to be able to figure it out, but they do it, they mimic it in Sleepaway Camp to great effect, and by the way, I'm probably going to do an episode this month on Sleepaway Camp, so stay tuned for that, and I would say there's also the element of, you know, so you've got Annie, this girl that's walking into town and she's trying to find out where this camp that she's going to work at is going to be. And she just, I mean, this fucking crazy guy, like all these people give her a look when she asks about the camp. And then this fucking crazy guy stops her and is warning her about the camp and shit. And it's, you know, it's like, I get it, not listening to the guy. And and all I could think as this was going on is so, you know, she gets taken out to the middle of nowhere and then she gets picked up by someone and they, it won't show who, so you know what that means. My, my first thought when... She gets picked up by this faceless person. And I'm like, Annie, don't you realize that you are in a horror movie? Like, how are you not picking up on that? Honestly, like, I, I'd like to think that if I was in a horror movie, I would definitely notice it pretty quick. I, I don't even understand how anybody in this movie heard about this camp at all. I, I, don't, I don't get how the word got around, you know, because it's like, how would the word get around that they were hiring for the camp, but the word didn't get around about that it was a cursed camp and the reason it had been closed for so long was... You know, this, that, and the other thing. I never honestly expected this chick to... <sighs> I'll be honest, like, every time I kind of forget a little bit that, like, I didn't realize that, you know, like, oh, right, Annie, she she isn't the main girl. She's not, like, the star of this movie. She gets killed pretty fucking quickly, actually. And that's that's how it goes down, you know what I mean? So it's, like, it's very surprising when she gets killed, and it's, it's a credit to the movie. They do a good job storytelling and not revealing that and leading you to believe something else... I would have honestly loved to get a summer job like this, like fixing up cabins and shit. And honestly, like, you know, it could, you know, aside from getting murdered, it could have been like the thrill of my life, you know? The guy that's running the camp though, I think I would want to steer clear of if I were a woman at all because the the guy has his hair is questionable his his hairstyle is very weird he's got a mustache a bandana tied around his neck and he is shirtless and he's wearing like cut off jean shorts it's not a good look it does not I mean I, I wish I could rock it but I I don't I'm not in as good a shape as he was so you know there there is that so Annie is clearly like it's like she still hasn't died you know. As I'm talking about it, I'm, you know, I'm making these notes throughout the movie and it's like they keep flashing back between what's going on at the camp and where Annie is and Annie is just carrying on and this, whoever she's getting a ride from is not saying jack shit to her and she's not even bothered by it really. But I gotta say, every time they they kick in with the theme, like the, the score, it feels so psycho-esque. Like it seems like it is just a carbon copy of most of the beats of the psycho theme and that's you know that is what it is. The the gore effects I would say are pretty solid in this one like they it made me think it because, you know, you see the two campers at the very beginning of the movie get murdered and you don't really see much so you kind of forget. And Annie gets killed against a tree and she has her, sl- uh, her she has her throat slit and it's it's pretty gruesome, I'm not going to lie. I like it. It's it's pretty solid. And as, you know, you see, I think it's Alice is her name that is the main girl. You know, it's like that was when I started thinking to myself that I've like never really had a a big thing for a main girl, you know, like I feel like a lot of guys probably would, but. And I, I feel like I normally would, but the main girls are just so generic, you know, like they're just so boring. And they they have a scene where a snake gets into one of their cabins and they kill the snake and it's very definitely a real fucking snake that they kill. And it's like, what did that add to this movie? You know what I mean? Like You fucking killed a snake for what? You know what I mean? I mean, I'm not pro-snake, don't get me wrong, but I also think that they're living things that don't deserve to die if they're not hurting anybody. And then there there's a scene where they are, like, a cop comes out to the camp, and this one guy is running around in, like, an Indian chief headdress, and he's just kind of, you know, talking, everybody's talking to this cop so casually, and acting like it's no fucking big deal, they're fucking with his his bike, you know, they're making jokes and shit that it's like, yeah, this, this guy's not in a joking mood. Like it'd be one thing if he was like coming out, like just laughing about like, haha, it sucks to be you guys have to fucking clean up this cursed camp or something. But no, he's like being dead serious. He's, he's concerned because this crazy guy is on the loose and you know, blah, blah, blah. I mean, there's a lot of, a lot of intercourse in this movie. And I, I like to call it intercourse when I'm pretending to be like an uptight prude about stuff. The, there's an effect, and I I need to look it up because I've seen how it's done before. And they, you know, when they kill Kevin Bacon, it's like, holy shit, you know, like they poke a fucking arrow through his neck. And it's like he had just looked down under his bed. And there was no one there, clearly, because he didn't react. And then it's like you're talking, and within the span of a couple of seconds, she would have had to fucking sneak under this stupid fucking bed. My God. Anyway, and Mar- Marcy takes an axe to the head. And of course, you don't see the axe go in, but you see the axe when it is in. And it's, it's a pretty solid effect. Uh, a lot of the kills are really creative but a lot of them didn't make a whole ton of sense in retrospect like like i mentioned you know the killer sliding under the the bed to Kill Kevin Bacon didn't really make a whole lot of sense. Somehow, and and I should just be clear, Mrs. Voorhees is the killer in this movie. If you don't know that, I'm sorry. It's I tried to warn you about spoilers on the posts and stuff. But anyway, she is the killer, and she somehow at one point in this movie pins a guy to a door with arrows, and it's not clear if she stabbed them into him while holding him up, or if I'm to believe that she somehow shot him into the. I don't I don't even, I don't even understand how the guy got on the door with all the arrows in him, but it is what it is. And she also threw this one girl through a window wrapped in rope for no reason. And I'm like, I don't give a shit. Betsy Palmer in this movie could not fucking do the... She she could not do the, the, the throwing of that girl. There's no fucking way. Nobody's there to help her. And she is chucking this fully grown woman through a fucking window. No. And my... My last major note for this movie was... Betsy Palmer was a good, unlikely choice for Mrs. Voorhees, but... We didn't really need these close-ups of her face at all, and I am not exaggerating. The close-ups are jarring, and I say jarring a lot. I mean, holy shit! I cannot fucking believe that this is what's going on. My my biggest praises of this movie would be the the overall the gore of the kills and and the the POV of the killer creating a mystery around you know who is causing these deaths and stuff and. I particularly I think that the the cast actually did a good job. There's nobody on in this movie. And it was like not great acting, but it was not like horrible acting that it was like unwatchable. So that was good. Uh, my biggest criticism would be the fucking close-ups on Betsy, Betsy Palmer. I cannot say that enough. And I would say some of the some of the kills, especially the first two kills, are so fucking chintzy and cheap. And they're you know they're at the the camp in way back when and. It's like okay, I mean, I guess, and but it, it, they just they don't they don't close close in on you know what they're actually doing in the scene, and they just cut away from them. They don't show much, so that'd be my big. And the, my other criticism is the the score of the movie being so closely so similar to the Psycho theme song. I just I don't like it. The original title of this movie was A Long Night at Camp Blood. Betsy Palmer notoriously called this movie a piece of shit and she only did it because she desperately needed a new car. Harry Crosby, who plays Bill, is the son of Bing Crosby, which is just a neat little tidbit. Um, I'm going to be a little bit more brief with the Friday the 13th ones just because, I mean, this entire review has been a little more brief, but so Hallow- er, Friday the 13th and Halloween, Friday the 13th is a lot more clean as far as the timelines, okay, so... So you get Friday the 13th, this one through... Friday the 13th, part eight, Jason takes Manhattan. At, you know, at one point, Jason's the killer in all but two of those eight movies. And then Jason's spirit is doing the killing in the uh, movie Jason Goes to Hell, which is the ninth and final Friday. And then, oh, wouldn't you know it, they come back with Jason X, and that's Jason in space, and he's killing people. Then, you know, they did the Freddy versus Jason movie and I can't remember, oh, they did a remake. I don't remember if that came, what came before or what, but they did a remake that was like an amalgamation of multiple Friday the 13th movies, and I watched it, and it was like, eh, I, it didn't really do much for me. But I would say, in terms of an overall, you know, just, if you feel like just watching generic slasher movies watch the Friday the 13th movies you know watch the first eight they're all pretty bad by you know one account or another but I mean the Halloween movies are so all over the place I I can't really recommend like half of them because they're so bad even the best ones are still pretty terrible so the runtime for Friday the 13th from 1980 is 95 minutes it had a budget of $550,000 worldwide gross was $59.8 million dollars imdb rating was 6.4 rotten tomato critics score 63 percent rotten tomato audience score 60 percent personal rating four out of five stars it's just it, it has a lot of uh less than stellar moments in it that i'm just kind of I, I can take or leave but it's it's a good casual one to just throw on if you're if you're not one of those people that gets scared easily by movies definitely just give it a shot and you know check it out all right everyone Thank you for tuning in. Obviously, let me know if you have. I get the feeling that by the time I finally release this episode, almost nobody will be listening to this this podcast anymore. But I'm going to keep chugging along because it's fun for me. So please, you know, if you are still listening, send me your requests. Send me, you know, what you think I should be doing. If you want me to change the format, I can certainly give it a shot if, if it seems reasonable to me, if I like the idea. Um, all right. Thanks, everyone. Have a good night. Brandon at Random Reviews is performed, written, directed, produced, and edited by Brandon Griffiths. Theme music is performed by Augusto Diniz from Fiverr.